you want to get the latest news about our podcast, including upcoming episodes, exclusive content, and live events, visit itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. How can it be that since 1950s, a form and style which we've done news is still being made like that today? It's just, it just doesn't make sense. Despite the rapid growth of digital technology, the visual language of video journalism hasn't changed that much since the early days of TV news. Today, I talked to one video journalist trying to change that. I'm Michael O'Connell, and you're listening to It's All Journalism. Cinematic journalism is a concept that maybe a lot of people don't, don't really know about, but it's something that's sort of been brewing in the back of video journalism for decades. David Dunkley Jimma leads the Innovatory Dislab UK and is currently an Asper Visiting Professor of Journalism at the University of British Columbia. I talked with him recently via Skype about this idea of cinematic journalism and how it's changing the way video journalists are telling their stories. Let me warn you, this is a pretty involved conversation, but if you have any interest at all in visual storytelling, I think you're really going to like what David has to say. So enjoy. I kind of became aware of your work a couple of months ago. I was uh, I saw a piece that you'd written on Medium sort of about the state of video journalism. What, what do you th- think is the state, the current state of video journalism? Um, gosh, it was one of those questions which you have to answer both sides it's good and it's bad and it's different but then what you know my my own perspective is that it's been through the ring video journalism as a word as a a label for whatever this thing is has has been around since the 1950s when they used um, various machines the ampex to record video onto film onto video so it's been around but it, it meant something else then and then it sort of surfaced in the 1990s as a way of one person doing video. And you had things like New York One, you had City TV, you had Sweden, and then you had in the UK, Channel One. And so invariably what would happen is one person would grab the camera, go out, shoot, do the story, do the stand-up, and, and sometimes even come back and edit. It got picked up by the networks. And a consequence of that was that certain things changed, particularly, and I'll use the BBC as an example, because the BBC adopted it around 2001. And they didn't want the authorial independence because they're a machine, they're a network. So there has to be sort of due process and Channel One did due process as well. But what then happens is what set out to be this idea that as the video, you were a complement, you were a kind of adjunct to even mainstream TV insofar as this was your story, your impression, but it was honest, truthful and the rest got subsumed into this body. So the idea of what you might call someone's style. And I'll, I'll use as an analogy sort of paintings. So you have realist painters around the sort of up until the 1880s or 1860s, and then you have the impressionists who come along who say, we're still going to do the truth, but this is our impression of it, and it's not a lie, and it works. And we know that because many of us go and see Monet, you know, sort of Cezanne and, and Manet and the rest. And in a way, that's what happened to video journalism. So the idea, therefore, the, of training people still within the realms of telling the truth and being honest and all that stuff, but letting them tell stories in a myriad of ways and a myriad of different styles changed. And it became 
be something uh, akin to the package and the, and the news package for industry workers and, and, and students and those interested is, is the sort of standard bearer for the way we tell stories. It's a, it's a construct and a formula and a very good one at that and engineering, good, very good one at that when it, was fir- it first came out. But it's been under a bit of stress since. If we keep on doing what we've been doing, we keep on getting done by marketeers and PR people who know how to get buyers because they know this is the way the package works. So it's that's where we are. And, and so where are we? Well, there are some very good outfits that are doing some very good video journalism and they have for a while. New York Times, The Post, uh, some of the papers who around the late 1990s decided they wanted to do video online. Vox is doing some great things, AJ+. And then there are other areas where you sort of look at other outfits and you just think that's that's not doing this thing, video journals of different styles and different ways of telling stories, but still trying to get underneath the bonnet. It's not doing it any good. Um, so, and I think therefore, what does that mean? I think whatever it is that we can do has to start from J school level of trying to get students, the next generation to understand what the strength and purpose of video journalism is. And I'm whistling on here, but I'll just finish this particular sentence because I I seem like I'm talking to myself. Hello, Michael, are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. (laughs) I'm being facetious. Um, I think I'll finish by saying the result of video journalism being absorbed into this mainstream idea of, oh, it's just television journalism, which just journalism as it is forced a number of people, including me, to look for new ways to define this thing that some very brilliant artists and very brilliant other journalists do. Uh, back in the channel from Washington Post was one. Um, you have, um, gosh, from the New York Times, um, whose name's just gone, but you have a whole slew of good journalists, his name will come to me, who, who practice video journalism in ways that they tell stories where you just think, wow, that's different and it really uses elements. I know you'll probably ask me this question again, so I'll be very cautious here. When we say cinema, we're not talking about fictional cinema. Factual cinema was around in the 1930s just as much as fiction was. So it's using just the cues, the tropes, schema to tell stories in such a way that they become meaningful, perhaps more profoundly because you're using visual and textual images as in different stylistic ways. You mentioned uh, television journalism and sort of the standard way that that the news is packaged by TV news, by TV, you know, videographers. And, you know, it's it's the stand-up porter, it's clips of whatever the story is, and it's told in a very succinct way. And I guess, you know, the the word that you, the other word that you mentioned, cinema, cinematic, you know, you, you talk also a lot about cinematic journalism. Could you sort of define what that is, just so we can have a some language to to sort of explore this indeed um cinematic or the cinema i think there's a nuance there but i'll I'll run with both of them for the meantime we cinema doesn't in itself have to be about film it's you know there can be language that's used under the volcano i think is the name title of the book is language described as cinematic you can be standing in front of niagara falls and view its for its awesomeness and think wow that's cinematic there are certain things that trigger within us these these ways of, of receiving data and, and interpreting them. We know cinema as a, as a, as a physical artifact from say the turn of the sort of 1900s, you know, when you know, the Lumiers and, and a number of even the Italians actually 
and what also came up with, 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 with the term itself. But what we do know is that it's kind of bifurcated from, on the one hand, fictional or factual when it first started to fictional. And that some scholars, many scholars have interpreted the way that cinema arose within even documentary form is because it was only dealing with the surface of things. I think Bill Nichols' book on documentary says this, dealing with the surface of things. So it has a history in factual, in factual filmmaking, particularly in, in, in Russia, where uh, terms by, I think it's Jay Layden's book on, on Russian documentary making is interpreted as cinema, you know, cinema journalism. Mm -hmm. And then you can fast forward to the 1960s where Robert Drew thinks, I, I want to do something more than what the networks are doing. And I'm going to find this way of saying it. I'm going to call it cinema verite. So he's using cinema also within the context of journalism. He calls his direct cinema. The US called this direct, the French called this cinema verite. But, you know, and I think what it's really trying to do is say that cinema's purpose, when, if you're a director and you're using the tools and, and the language of filmmaking ahead of you, everything is about trying to exact meaning, or if you want to, it's about obfuscating meaning because you know what you're doing. Every shot that's on there has purpose. So to give you perhaps a very neat, and I don't mean neat as in clever, but mm -hmm. neat as in pure analogy, in TV, we call shots that we essentially gather, we call them GVs or B-roll, general vision. And it's general because we just need those shots to illustrate. Whereas if you're making a film in cinema, each shot there has a purpose. You could decode it in ways that says this is what it's trying to do to move the narrative on. So cinema attached to journalism isn't new. It's been around. What we're essentially saying is in this era, there are some very clever people coming from in, from the background um, who even have film back, uh, sort of film backgrounds or film aficionados. It was interesting for me, and the way this name also came about was through a PhD study. And it was, the itch first came because I did some work in, and it won an award in Berlin. And then I thought, you know, this can't just be something I've discovered. So I went around and I went around looking for the video journalists, major video journalists who had won awards. And I said, okay, so, and I'd, sat, I'd asked them questions. So I'd say, you've won an award, I, I really like your film. And then when it got to the question that said, what, what kind of field or discipline are you using? Uh, more often than not, 80% of the time, they would say, I'm, I'm influenced by cinema. And I, I've got recordings of these. So in the end, you could argue, well, okay, well, David, you know, fancifully you're calling this thing cinema. And I say, okay, that's great, but it's confusing. And yes, there is no essence of cinema. It is a confluence of things, but it, you know, but they are saying that. And then we did another test where we take two films side by side, and I've got one online that I use as an example between um, what one of the networks is doing and a well-known VJ who now works at CUNY, who used to be at New York Post, whose name just, uh, sorry, the Washington, Washington Post, sorry, his name just escaped me. But we had two films side by side and we consistently showed them to different students. And they would say, that one looks like news and documentary and that one on the right looks like cinema. So they too were interpreting it as such. And then independently of my own analysis, just blinded, well, that's what drew me there in the first place. You looked at their films and you just thought they're doing something different. Um, they're doing something with the, 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 the nature of the way they make film 
um, and the nature of how they might tell a story that brings a sense of, and, and you could argue here, and I would accept it because it's, um, there is the, you know, film can be a palimpsest, it can be documentary and cinema, it can be news and feature, it can be those things. But what was coming through a lot of the times was this way of looking at films which had very strong impacts on people, on, 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 on those watching it. And they, the audience would describe that. If you look at one of the films perhaps, which is probably one of the, there were many definers, but uh, your, 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 your listeners uh, will, will very likely know the name of a, um, a, a brilliant um, filmmaker, a video journalist, called Dan Fung Dennis. Mm -hmm. Dan Fung Dennis made a film about 2009, 2010, called To Hell and Back Again. Um, he was one of my interviewees in 2009 when he got back from Afghanistan the first time. I was an artist in residence at the South Bank and I'd heard about this film and I'd called him over and we had this wonderful interview, which actually I'm going to play some of that on Tuesday because it's his words and he says it. And I said, so what is this thing you're doing? He goes, well, it's video journalism. I'm not entirely sure I know everything about it, uh, but I've seen other people do it, but I'm, I'm using cinema to influence the way I tell my films that I've never been in contact with him ever, but he was telling me this. I said, oh, okay, um, and, 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 and how does that come about? So it's, it's the sort of photojournalism, it's the narrative and the way it's being put together. I am influenced by, in a sense really, watching lots of fictional films but really, in trying to tell those stories, it's not—it's not the bringing over of the fiction. It's the way that, say, a frame or, or something might be shot, that influences him, indeed, for calling it that, and the audience as well. I think the BBC has a thing has, has a new breed of of camera persons. They call picture correspondents because they use—they tend to be. Um, cameramen and women who work with correspondents in the field and so they, they know one another very well and they tend to also use a lens language, you know, on, on say their DSLR or their Canon or their C3 100, the kind of cameras that allow them to shoot cinematically, which is defining say the visual, but cinema and also sensing how the plot, you might put together the story and that's a word you won't hear mentioned a lot in journalism about, so, okay, what's the story, but how's the plot going? You know, because the plot is seen as a fictional thing, but when you're speaking to those video journalists, they interpret it completely different. So you've just got this in the background, a group of people, award-winning video journalists who are doing remarkable stuff, um, really using the evidence of what they know, the evidence of what the audience sees. And from my own itch that I was scratching and it just somehow converges on this idea of cinema. Yeah, I get what you're saying, because as you were talking, I think I was thinking about a lot of different things about that sort of the standard news report is is very much kind of a, a product of the environment of the way that television news sort of grew uh, yes. that that, you know, that we have this sort of convention of the uh, the studio setup pretty much because in the early days, they kind of had to be able to control the sound and the video. And so, yeah. okay, well, we need to create an environment where we're going to create this news moment. But with more portable, you know, cameras, more, you know, the ability to go outside the studio and gather, you know, our, you know video and audio of a, uh, of a sufficient quality, you know, it, it's weird that people are still kind of 
bound by the the strictures of this you know sort of studio idea of way to, a way to compose a story, a way to cover a story. One of the things that was, it was funny is, you know, I was watching a lot of your videos this morning uh, before we started the interview on, on YouTube. And, and uh, you, you mentioned one of the people you mentioned is is Robert Drew. And, and coincidentally, in the lead up to 2016 election, TCM showed Primary, which was the sort of news documentary coverage of the Wisconsin 1960 Wisconsin primary. And I began thinking about that in in this idea of telling news stories in a more cinematic way, and that was, you know, definitely uh, what you were talking about, um, cinema verte, where it was documentary like, but it was also very immersive. That the they were following the the 1960 candidates, and you know, you're seeing, you know, you know, John Kennedy and, and um, Jackie Kennedy like up close and just walking through a room and be, being behind them. And it's a completely different experience than just sort of these standard locked in interviews that, that you have from all the other news coverage. And so the, you're, as, a, as a viewer, you're experiencing the news in a very different way. And, and I would think we'd see more of that now that we have a technology that is, is much more mobile and much, much easier for somebody to catch, capture a variety of imagery. I had the immense, immense, and I'll say it again, immense opportunity to speak to Robert Drew as part of my study. Mm -hmm. I rang and spoke to him for an hour, and some of that, those interviews are actually online, just to get a sense of what he was doing and, and what he was trying to achieve. Some interesting things emerged from that. His interaction with his boss at the time, who said, hey, Bob, you've got some interesting stuff there, but it's an incomplete film. As you say there, the ability that when they crafted the smaller camera that enabled them to go mobile and get those shots. And in one of the films I put together, the difference between TV and what they did, you see how the, at that time the TV was studio bound, exactly what you say, and, and they had these smaller cameras they were going out. TV was also constrained by the idea that it wasn't fully bought on what TV was going to be. I mean, it was still growing. So it was still giving them smaller sums of money than it would do, say, per whatever the spending is for radio. The idea that one TV station or a TV station only had one camera is because actually they would rather not have given it the camera at all. And we've stuck with that. So, you know, one camera woman per reporter, we've stuck with that today. Whereas cinema in its bid to get a shot to work, and if you take the fictional cinema people, they will have five, six cameras there. Just so, and if you, if, and if you acted that in situ of, of journalism from factual uh, cinema, then why not? So Robert Drew contextualized Cinema Verite then with wonderful full primary. But here's something I thought was something I, I learned that I thought was really um, an eye-opener for me. What was going on was that you had, and, and this is in deference to Robert Drew that I say this as well, because what was going on was Robert Drew had, uh, not just Robert Drew, um, Maisels, Albert and David, and there were various others, oh gosh, um, what's his name, who, who also passed. You know, you had a whole swathe of them, about four or five of them, who... Not, not who, Richard Leacock, is it? Richard Leacock, actually Richard Leacock. Yeah, I should know that because I've got a picture with him when he was that Sheffield <laughs> uh, documentary. You can tell I'm a, I'm a groupie here, can't you? I mean, you know, my interviews with Drew completely, I mean, I was like, ah, oh. my standing next to uh, Leacock was like, ah. Oh. And that's not to say when I stood next to um, Jay-Z, I didn't go, ah, oh, when he came to our school, but it was a different ah. Oh. I was just like, no, you know what? Jay-Z, I know you do this, but these these guys, when I'm standing, these these are giants whose shoulders when it comes to film. 
Robert Drew Leacox had come across Cinema Verite and were adamant that this was the way you did it. The French, too, had their cinema verite, you know, direct cinema. Canadians also indulged in it. I think it was Michel Braun was part of that group. So you had three or four different ways in the 60s of people defining what was cinema. And they were actually fighting each other over this. And in part, it's also about ownership and dominion. Mm -hmm. You know, I can claim this is the way it's done. Then actually, that's my business and, and you follow me, you know. So you had these three or four different groups say, saying this is what it is, when in fact, today you would say, actually, you were both right. There is no essence. What you were both doing is saying this is a style and this is a style. And all those styles exist for you to say, OK, here's the story I'm going to go and do. Which style would I use? In the same way that you would do, say you were doing something which you wanted to be slow and languid in, in fictional cinema, you'd say, should I use neorealism? Or you wanted to get to an audience of teens or who like action, you'd go, shall I use intense continuity in Hollywood films where you have all this action, the sequence of very tight, you know, the sort of stuff that you'll see in the Bourne film where it's 1.6 seconds per cut. So knowing those different styles just allows you to anticipate or, and as the artist, put them together and say, well, who's my audience and how I'm going to do it? So the, the outcome, therefore, direct cinema versus Robert versus Cinema Verite was that they were both correct. But at the time, I, I guess we were still, you know, sort of challenging each other on what is the alternative to the news package as it exists. And, and so we, we, we sometimes get lost in that. And I think we're at a stage now where, you know, in defining cinema journalism, I will say, yeah, that works. You know, you're working in, I, I did a film along the Syrian border with some very abled young people who were doing some films and when we watched them we, we could see their influences. Their influences were from the sort of films that some of us might be accustomed to, Abbas Khoistami, Iranian and films where some of the great filmmakers have, have come from that region. There is no one model, it's just the supermodel of filmmaking, whether it's in news, is the package, and in fictional film, it's the kind of Hollywood model of the ending must always be uplifting, you know, mm -hmm. must always, always be causal. You've got to know what's going on. The cinema in, in, in the 1990s went through an interesting change when you have dogma, where they're using smaller cameras now and, and they're trying to break hope out of this, the Hollywood model. And then all of a sudden you get this form that existed for a while but wasn't being used. It was part neorealism. It was part non-linear. And then you get Tarantino doing something where the film is back to front. And right. it's not causal. And you have to think it through. But actually, he's been very clever here because in so doing, he used the term, I want you to chase my movie. He wants you to think critically about it and you unravel and see what it means. You can't do that. Now, if someone's listening, think, yeah, but you can't do that for judgment. I'm not suggesting you do. There are some films that would work and some it doesn't. But there is no exacting thing. If you build up a library of how you might interpret cinema to use on something. You build up a, a style guide of how you might approach because you want the audience to understand how this film should work and what they should take from it, as opposed to every single piece of video or film you make should have a stand-up or it should be done with a 15-second intro followed by a 10-second clip followed by a 15-second voice over again, followed by another 15-second clip. So you get the standard way of saying it, which you could also argue, well, it's news, so there has, that's, that's the way it's got to be done. There's a, the correct way of being done is the standard. But that actually, no, because news itself is a construct. 
CBS and NBC over the period of time he's and his own um, a couple of PhDs that I read and the way they they put their news together you know, sort of eight ten you know before 1940s 55 they were constructing it they were putting it together it's it's not defined it is what it is and we've just stumbled across it and as your question answer showed there we've just kept with that model I interviewed the head of the BBC's nations and regions, the director, very high up. Mm-hmm. And his words to me are resounding, and this is how it goes. He goes, how can it be that since 1950s, a form and style of which we've done news is still being made like that today? It just doesn't make sense. Those are his words, Pat Lowry, but those are his words. So you see, the, everything I hope that we get to talk about here has evidence to it and some empirical, not some, has empirical evidence to it because it's it's a, it's a rather dangerous premise to start off by going, no, cinema or this or that. So we took our time, I say we and my supervisor and us when we sat down, to just ask and be rigorous and ask and you'd come across people who would say, this doesn't work anymore, we've got to do something else. And of course people would say, well, we're using this, but it's not being taught in J school. This isn't being taught in J school, the idea this probably begs a separate question, but I'll roll it into one. The idea that as you and I are talking, you put a dead cat on the table. Uh, how did you know? <laughs> Is that your question? You have a camera here? No, no, yeah, no. go on. There's no dead cat on this table that you know of. Okay, but the dead cat on the table, immediately, if you, when you ask people what happens, they go, well, we stop talking and we look at your dead cat. Yeah, of course. So actually what, it's, what it is, is a huge distraction to a conversation that you and I might be having on policy. But when I put a dead cat on the table, we all stop and talk about the dead cat. Right. Time and time and time and time again, news is taken by the short and curlies because someone puts a dead cat on the table. And you can name any number of people who may come to mind. You know, PR, marketing, uh-huh. has won over on journalism because it knows how journalism reacts. And when we're doing, when I'm taking some of our students through what I mean by cinema, we're, we're taking them through some of the neurosciences of the, of the way the brain works, of how I can get you to think irrationally or how your irrational thoughts do this, that, and the other. And when you begin to understand that, could you, when you go and make your next film, understand that you might mention that's a dead cat, but that is not the story, and then keep to what the story is. Otherwise, you know, you know, sometimes I ask, what, what's, what is the purpose of, of journalism? And I don't mean that in a facetious, facile way, but it is to bring us information. And sometimes those dead cats might be the information, but invariably they're not the policies and, and the information that's going to make someone at home get their check and, you know, be able to pay their rent and all those stuff. Those are the things that matter. And I'm not therefore also suggesting that cinema journalism is the be all and end all, just as other forms have existed side by side. I expect it will do. I'm just an advocate for seeing more of the way we might tell stories that can go underneath the bonnet as much as behind it. Yeah. To sort of move away from this idea of what what TV news was and what, you know, this new type of uh, approach to storytelling. I mean, one of the things I was thinking about what you you were talking about is... uh, you know that stories are always always one particular way. This is this is this is always the way that it's been done. Why why don't we change it? And when I th- when I hear things like that, I always think of well, you know, sonnets 
are a particular type of poetry. And yeah. the challenge of that is within the constraints of that, being able to tell something different and beautiful and, and exciting. On the one hand, you can do great things in a, in a limited structure, but then on the other hand, by not opening yourself up to being able to use sort of some of the other tools of, of visual storytelling, one of the things I think about is manipulation. Just talking about cinema, uh, you know, a bad director is somebody who's trying to manipulate you and you see it. And a good director is somebody who's trying to manipulate you, but you don't see it. And so just having a, a, a weird montage or, or a flare or something in there that doesn't elicit something. Is that poor storytelling or is it, is it just something that's not communicating? Or I guess what I'm trying to think of is, is the unnecessary elements. That... Yes, and there are always going to be good filmmakers, bad filmmakers, bad writers, good writers, and people who get this necessary skill and do things with them. But ultimately, this is knowledge, but it's understanding, a good understanding of what your film and the purpose of it is. Now, the, the integrity, therefore, of the journalist or the person behind the film is on the table. But you're right in, in the way that we use images and, and whether you want to call it semiotically or, or cognitively, knowing how those elements work together doesn't make you, and I'm not suggesting you said that, but doesn't make you prone to misusing them. Because as right. I said, the one thing we should still be valued, be measured by is our integrity to tell the truth. And here's that hoary word, to be objective. And that objective isn't about you, the per se person. It's just about the process by which you go about looking to tell the story. And this is not me saying it. This has been captured in Elements of Journalism, the, the book by uh, Kovac and Rosenstiel. You know, going back to sort of Walter Lippmann here, it was about the process. What can I do with checks and balances to make sure that I am attempting to be, rather than it's about me, the journalist per se, these tools, these skills exist, and they will be there for us. We've got a job on our hands for the next generation of storytellers and journalists to say, this is how you tell the story. And when you ask that person this question, you make that claim against them, you have to give that person there the right to reply. You have to, because you've made an allegation. Part of sometimes journalism is, <laughs> part, almost all the time, <laughs> it's, I was going to say it's common sense, but then what's common to who? It's common to who? But it's about, you know, if, if I say this and it's an, it's an allegation, then I expect I'll give you the opportunity to, to answer it. And if you're saying something which is wild and just seems out of place, I think also we need to be able to question that as well. But you're getting some really interesting films coming out which are doing that kind of job whereby with access and with the language they're using and with the way they're shooting their films, they are eking out different perceptions of what we're seeing, which are helping us build up knowledge. Take the film by Vice in Charlottesville. Mm -hmm. Someone had the wherewithal to have, I think there was more than one camera there. Yeah, there were three, someone, I think. Yeah. Yes. So someone jumped into the car to carry that on. I mean, you could argue this was documentary making. I'm saying that as a you could have turned this around very quickly. There were certain cues that we came across when we were measuring some of the things behind what are they doing, what are they using. And language and the way they spoke was one of them. Now, I'm not saying again to you this is definitive, but it was interesting 
And it was interesting to us that when we were measuring the way reporters spoke, I will use the word hail, not because I invented it, because it's something in David Bordwell's books on the way a reporter or, or reportage works. Hailing, so you get this voice that goes, here I am standing and it's me almost hailing at you, the, 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 the viewer. Whereas when we were measuring people who are trying to be effective in different ways, the voice, the tonal part of the voice was almost conversational. So we say, I'm, I'm sitting here just wondering, why did that person do that? And it brought about a different sense of the film, I suppose. So I'm sitting here wondering why that person would do that. So the perceptions was different. But I know that's not your question. Your question invariably is about, you know, when we get these tools, you know, what's the the propensity or the, the risk to doing harm with it. Well, these tools exist and there are people using them and they are winning awards. And if we could follow their, if we could follow suit in what they're doing, that wouldn't be a bad thing. But they, you know, there will always be those who, who go off piste and do what they want. But, you know, it's something which would aid us. We're in a century where there's so much stuff being thrown at us. I'm glad you mentioned the, the Vice Charlottesville video because I thought that was rather, it was brilliant in a lot of different ways. You know, one of the things you mentioned is that the way they shot it, they, you know, they were, it was sort of guerrilla coverage as, as things were sort of unfolding. But also the, the role of the, the journalist, she, you know, I mean, she'd established this rapport with, with certain people in, in the alt-right community and that, that allowed her some access uh, that other people wouldn't. But she was there. She was asking questions. She was a part of the narrative in the moment as the story was unfolding, you know, and, and you, you talked about that, that, that second voice very much where she was, you know, this just happened, you know, why did this, you know, where are we going now? That sort of, of thing and putting it into context, you know, in this sort of, you know, cinematic video journalism, the role of the reporter, do, do you feel the role, the, the reporter becomes more a part of the narrative? Again, to it's not fixed, but I think we'd agree that the role of the reporter is to bring us the story. Right. And so again, too, these are strands of different styles that we might have. But I think the one thing perhaps we'd like to think of is that we want the story rather than the reporter to dominate. Now, the secondary argument to that is there are situations where reporters have become brands and they have their own followings, just like you have someone on YouTube with their own following. So actually, we we often follow a story because we want to follow them. I call it the DJ principle. You follow a particular DJ, but which, whichever station they go to because you like the DJ. So there's nothing wrong in sometimes the reporter. But as we were saying uh, earlier, or as I was referring to, I think within this idea of understanding how different styles work and, and knowing what those different styles are, there are times when you want to become invisible. In Robert yeah. Drew's cinema, the reporter was completely absent. And whilst that had its merit, a well-known scholar in the UK raised a point that was interesting. Because they couldn't interview the people, they decided not to interview people on camera. If you, in a sequence of Q&As with someone standing by, had said, I've just killed my mother, there was no way for the reporter to interject almost immediately to say, what did you just say, why? Because they weren't allowed, quote unquote, to be on screen. That's what happened in the jinx, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, you see, because you've made a conscious decision that we don't need the reporter, and that's why I'm saying it's not it, it's not an either or, it's in anticipating that eventually the story works. And is the story going to be you, the reporter, driving it because we actually don't have all the facts? And how are we going to tell this because of the way the audience might perceive it? Or is it going to be actually you just moving the story on? So you're the conduit and the skill of how you handle that is actually quite invisible because, but in the end, I mean, the reporter behind Charlottesville handled it so adroitly, so deftly, her whole tone, the way that she pushed it on, she was made Vice do some very clever things and I wrote about them a while back. I used to work for an outfit many years back in the BBC called Reportage, which would have been Vice circa 1990. And we were allowed to do things that were, the networks couldn't do. We were, you know, we were, we were, some of our reporters were finding where was money coming from, illegal money coming from and finding its way into the UK, how kids in schoolyards were swapping at the sets at that time was discs, but on these discs, instead of soccer players, there were football players, there, were, there was porn. So we were allowed to do things. So when I see Vice, I get it. The language, the tone is meant for a particular audience and it works on that audience. And they, if they tried the repertorial approach that we're used to on TV, the audience would abandon them mm-hmm. because it, there is an element to that of being talked at as opposed to what digital and and all social networks now talk about is the conversation, the one that you and I are having, right. which would be different if I was on a radio and you were asking these very set questions. And when you finished, I would speak and you, and, and as opposed to now, you know, we're talking, then you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we, you figured me out um (laughs) one thing that that i wonder about is with with the prevalence of video i mean we we've always been visual consumers i think but with the prevalence of of uh, online video and the way it's sort of been morphing over the last you know few years to do you see that the viewer the the user the 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 reader the listener is being more demanding do you think is that sort of shaping the way video is going to be presented moving forward michael is known for asking very tough questions by the way uh podcast <laughs> your, your, your your listeners these are things i really am concerned about okay <laughs> <laughs> no i'm thinking about it i interviewed charlotte debach from uh vice a couple of uh, weeks back and, and i was thinking she talked about you know she was talking about you know, the way she approaches and she was very much, you know, a YouTube type of reporter where she's somewhere and, and she was the conduit for for the viewer. Um, right. And then I'm like, OK, well, and clearly because it's Vice, it's a younger audience. And because, you know, digital media is that audience's, you know, media that you, know, you have outfits like this that, that come up and, and specialize in that sort of delivery and serving that sort of audience. You know, you've been you've been doing video this type of video journalism for a couple of decades. I mean, do you see a big change at this point? Yes, but also I think sometimes we've made the assumption that the audience found us uh-huh. or the audience wasn't interested and we did something and they went, yes. But you know, um the, 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 the archive tells us, history tells us that when the BBC first set up its radio, the possibility existed for them to do synchronous radio. Mm-hmm. In other words, we could have spoken to the 
listener and the listener could have spoken back to us. Wow. The BBC's director general at the time took the view that no, it's got to be asynchronous. No, because the audience wouldn't understand what to do with this thing they had. So I think the audience, when we when people talk about the audience, and it's the reason why I paused earlier on is because the audience is such a huge subject. Because who is the audience? Where do they come from? The audience right. is, is is very aged. It's 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 different. You know, we're not one big mass. But if we talk about people and what they want, I would say it works in two ways. But firstly, there was there is always a group of people who exist to want something, and when that need is put before them they take it. In other words, they have an appetite. And so therefore, as soon as they hear about it, as soon as someone says to you, have you seen this? Or as soon as YouTube becomes a form, it takes off, it takes off, it ta and then it, it explodes. Same thing again with, with TV in the 1960s or in the late 50s, when there's a few people, there's a coronation, and then people say, how do I watch it? And then they buy all TVs again. So the audience is always, we've always been there craving these things at, at such point that when it's put in front of us, we then go, ah, that, that helps me out. I've always wanted to do that. And then also conversely, you have another type of audience who actually doesn't know what they want and has to be convinced by something they see. So they haven't made any conscious decision to go online or to do something, but actually something, you know, sparks them and then they're right. off. So, but it exists only in, exists as part of this conversation as much as it, we're, we're trying to add on to it. And it is changing, you know, not, let's not argue about it. There have been changes within television. We're talking here about a very stark one. With that in mind, you sort of have to think, well, what is it that they could do with the audience that perhaps they're not? Because they have to serve. And, and also, let's, we, have, we also have to be careful because there is a political economy here. In other right. words, the advertisers pay the, the TV, therefore, and has to deliver to that audience. It's not going to do anything that would upset that. But to the audience itself and how, you know, we might help them understand or they might help us understand, that's a fluid flow between us. I, it, it's not fixed. They want things that they haven't seen. We sometimes have things we want them to see. But I suppose the, the nuance is in recognising that you've done something and it works and the audience, it, you're confirmed by that. And you could use any number of examples on some very good shows, including network shows. And then the audience flocks to that. Yeah. Give me an example of a video journalist who, you know, people who go to, to sort of get to see this type of storytelling. I think my go-to person would be Travis Fox, who used to, I think he used to work for the New York Times. Certainly, I think at some point he probably worked for the Washington Post, but he's now a professor at CUNY. And I would watch his films because he, as a video journalist, he would travel and make these, these films. And he brought, he brings to his films a real craft and a way of telling the story. Now, this is nice here because he brings to it a kind of, and, and photojournalists would get this, he brings to a photojournalist sensibility in the way that he frames and goes from one sequence to the other. So the story, you're, you're watching shots that aren't GVs, general vision or B-roll, they are shots that mean every single time something. And I, I put together a wee video called What is Cinema Journalism? And I featured him in that where he I put side by side 
uh, a disaster that happened in Sichuan province, an earthquake, horrible thing. And one network does it in a certain way by the standard of the package. And then he does his in a certain way. And there are very, very definable things that emerge from that. For one thing, it starts and you get this sense when this couple are crying, you get a sense of the real emotions and empathy. It takes about 21 seconds until you hear his voice come in. And when his voice comes in, it doesn't dominate. It's almost as emotional as what's going on. So, you, you know, and it's, it's really down. It's like, you know, this is what's happening. And then it continues. And what is then you, you're getting is a sequence of shots that on the ground, as things are unfolding, it, it's almost immediate. And he's just rolling back and bringing you images and, and text and form that says this is what they're going through. And I've watched that and I've shown it to others. And I know there have been other scholars, Lancaster, who's, who wrote a book, another scholar who wrote a book that featured Travis Fox, also just said the way he shoots and the way he tells it, it's not just cinematic in as much as the video, it's the way he puts it together. You watch it and you do believe you're actually watching a film. Now, Travis Fox, you might argue that, oh, he's using emotion, I mean, and that word is a horrible word in itself, but he's using it in the, with the integrity he has as a journalist in bringing you into the story to tell you and inform you and make you feel about his story. And he does it in a way that any of his students must feel rather, or anyone, anyone who's not one of his students must feel envious that they don't have him as a professor. So yes, you know, Travis Fox, he's the go my go-to person that, and he wouldn't call it cinema journalism, but within the interview, you'll hear later on when I ask him a question, I say, so who have been your influences? And I think he mentions Tony Gannett, I think his name is Tony Gannett. Is it something of that? But he mentions a French director, a French director, mm. where he says, you know, this is this is this is the person I'm influenced by." And I go, "Ah, oh, okay, that's interesting. That's that makes sense." No, it's Tony Gatley. Tony Gatley is a French director. And I say, "Ah, oh, okay." And again, to the question wasn't a leading question. You might go, "So, are you influenced by cinema?" No. Right. I ask the question, says, "Well, what are you influenced by?" You know, I like I like cinema and documentaries, but cinema, yeah, Tony Gatley. David, I think I could probably talk to you for another couple of hours, but we're going to wrap it up here. Thank you very much for your time. This is this has been incredibly fascinating. Thank you very much for your time as well. And thank you for the opportunity to talk to you about something which I feel deeply, deeply passionate about. And hopefully uh, we can continue this conversation in e-cyberspace. Definitely. Thanks. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. And while you're visiting our website, why not click at the link at the top of the page and fill out our short five-question survey to let us know how we could improve this podcast. We really do want to hear what you have to say. Tell us what type of guests and what topics you'd like us to address on upcoming episodes. Speaking of It's All Journalism episodes, you can download our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast One. It takes a lot of people to put together an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. 
Target USA podcast with your host, J.J. Green. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. That could touch the whole of the United States. ISIS. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to see an attack. This is J.J. Green. Join me each week for the latest on U.S. and international security on Target USA. The Target USA podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC. The What's Working in Washington podcast with your host, Jonathan Aberman. We share this region's innovative, entrepreneurial, and creative spirit. This podcast tells impressive stories of passion and spunk taking place here in the D.C. region. It illustrates how the nation's capital is anything but the stuffy, bureaucratic, politics-only reputation it tries to shed. The What's Working in Washington podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast D.C.